Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have no good martinis for you again. We've got bad, bad, and crazy, which is certainly also bad. Uh, Jim, you and I both tweeted about this, probably more out of frustration than actual comedy, but we decided to go with comedy in our tweets. But the Supreme Court, according to the Associated Press, saying Thursday an eight-month investigation that included more than 120 interviews and revealed shortcomings in how sensitive documents are secured has failed to find who leaked a draft of the court's opinion overturning abortion rights. 97 employees, including the justice's law clerks, swore under oath that they did not disclose a draft of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion that overturned Roe v. Wade. It was unclear whether the justices themselves were questioned about the leak, which was the first time an entire opinion made its way to the public before the court was ready to announce it. And so, uh, Jim, uh, the official phrase is, The court has to date been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence, which sort of suggests that the investigation continues. But the the more you read about the court statement here, it basically says, yeah, we don't know and we're probably never going to know. It's very disappointing. And when there's no consequences for actions like this, you're going to get more of it. Indeed, Greg. And, you know, you're right. They don't say we're giving up. But if you haven't found the leaker thus far, it makes it sound like you're going to need some sort of stroke of luck or breakthrough to determine the leaker. And that was what they, you know, from the very beginning, John Roberts was saying, this is an outrage and this cannot stand. And we will get to the bottom of this. And here we are now many months later, I guess we're coming up on almost a year later and, you know, no progress has been made. The law, I also am deeply frustrated by a statement that they put it out. It, doesn't really make it sound like there's clear it says that the justices swore that they were not the source of the leak but it doesn't say whether they were investigated asked questions anything like that and i just i'm deeply frustrated that an institution like the supreme court just doesn't feel any need to clarify on that point look either the justices were investigated or they were not if they were not from the very beginning there have been suspicions that the justices including those perceived to be on the left and those perceived on the right were behind the leak um, I don't know if any of these theories ever really uh, had an enormous amount of, of evidence behind them. The people who were suspecting the left of center justices had didn't like those justices beforehand. The people suspecting the right of center justices didn't like the right of center justices beforehand. So a lot of this was, ha, I'll bet the justice that I hate the most was the one who leaked it. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But if you didn't investigate, that it's like from the very beginning, there's been this theory that this was leaked by one of the justices and that the justice would not be uh, brought to justice or suffer any consequences because it would be too harmful to the reputation of the court. And thus, you know, as with other big mysteries in life, like, hey, where did the COVID-19 pandemic come from? (laughs) It's easier for all involved to just, ah, we just don't know. We just can't figure it out. It's too hard. Oh, well, we're all just going to have to go on with our lives, you know. Uh, with this mystery that Robert, you know, we don't have Robert Stack around to walk around in a trench coat and say, maybe you can help us solve a mystery. Um, <laughs> but each time one of these things happens, we end up with a little bit more damage to public faith in institutions. They never came up with any uh, motive for that mass shooter out in Las Vegas. For a couple of people say that actually they did figure it out and it's so troubling they didn't release it to the public. It's an interesting theory, but I don't 
I don't know if I <laughs> that that justifies it by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, we don't know who placed the pipe bombs on January six. My theory is that they actually one of the, the perpetrator was one of the people they've already arrested, and they simply can't find the suspect because the person's already in custody. But nobody else can can prove who this person is. Now, it's each time this happens, people feel like the people in charge either are incompetent or they could determine who it is, but it would result in institutional embarrassment. So they decide, ah, it's better to just decide, oh, well, we're never going to find it. Um, it did provide, I, I, you know, I, I think, you know, one of our unofficial slogans here is we laugh because otherwise we would cry. Uh, Greg, I completely endorse your proposal to have Jack Bauer bring in for some more of these interviews. <laughs> it's not, I put as my, my follow-up was like, okay, could we rent Kiefer Sutherland just for a little <laughs> while, just, just to walk around the building and say, I'm going to find that leaker. And just like, eventually the leaker would like freak out and be like, oh God, okay, it was me. Please arrest <laughs> me. Please, put, please, please put me in the legal system. Don't let me be confronted by Jack Bauer. Even though Jack Bauer is a fictional character, just seeing Kiefer Sutherland glowering, walking, stomping around your workplace would probably freak you out. Uh, or alternately, this was not true, but everyone seemed, I, I was glad no one accused me of perpetuating fake news. Greg, somebody did admit to being the Supreme Court leaker. Unfortunately, it was George Santos. <laughs> well, then you know it's not true. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's the one thing he could say that make us get him off the hook. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's theories that go in both directions. Some say it came from the right so that the justices who were on that side couldn't over the next few weeks, uh, you know, wimp out and, and, and side with uh, the, the liberals on that and just keep it to the 15-week ban, which was the original case out of Mississippi. On the other hand, the libs seemed really ready with their statements and the people taking to the streets almost immediately. So um, that's kind of where I lean. But uh, again, we don't have the evidence. But uh you know, the investigation here is very disappointing, and it seems to me at this point now the court's going to look for the real leaker about as sincerely as OJ's looking for the real killer. All right. Well, there's something much, much better than that story, and that is the phenomenal meat you can get through your Moink box. Look, we've talked a lot about the climate movement people and all the things they want us to do, eat bugs. We don't subscribe to that. We think meat is awesome, especially when it's grilled and especially when you get the best cuts of meat from places like Moink. There's no better place than the Moink box. Moink does not deliver bugs. If you'd like some, <laughs> I'm sure there's some other company that can do that for you, but it's not Moink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon, all delivered straight to your door. Remember, you choose the meat that gets delivered in every box, from ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops and salmon fillets. And remember, you can cancel anytime. Best bacon I have ever had. The steaks are phenomenal. The chicken, everything you order in the Moink box, which you do get to order, is outstanding. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash martini right now. And listeners to the Three Martini Lunch get free filet mignon in every order for a year. That's one year of the best filet mignon you will ever taste, but only for a limited time. Spelled M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini. That's moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second bad martini now. And I could have sworn just a few weeks ago, the scheduled uh, debt ceiling showdown was coming in the fall. Now, all of a sudden, it's here. And the Treasury Department is taking extraordinary measures to hold off uh, default and all sorts of other fiscal calamities while uh, Congress and the president figure out uh, an extension uh, of the debt ceiling. 
I assume extraordinary measures means fudging the numbers <laughs> until they get something done. But uh, anyway, uh, the Republicans, of course, just like they did back in the big uh, debates of, of 2011 after the uh, Tea Party revolution, you know, they're going to extend the debt ceiling, but they want to put some measures in place to prevent us from, you know, being in this position again so soon. And just like President Obama did back in the day. This is the bill we've already agreed to pay. We're not going to put conditions on it. Uh, the Biden administration doing the exact same thing, even though Republicans control a, a chamber of Congress uh, and they should have to negotiate with them. No, nope, we're just not going to do anything other than a clean extension. Here's uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre earlier this week. This is something that uh, should be done without conditions. We have been very, very clear about that. Uh, we are not going to be negotiating uh, over the debt ceiling. Uh, but I'll say this more broadly. At the start of the new Congress, and I actually spoke about this last week, we're reaching out to all members in both parties to build relationships and establish points of contact. That is something that the Office of Ledge Affairs has done uh, for the past couple of weeks. Uh, but, you know, this has been done when you talk about the debt ceiling. It has been done in a bipartisan way, and there should be bipartisan cooperation to address this. It should not be a political football. This should not be a political football, and we should do it without conditions. So, Jim, it's uh, once again the Republican radicals who want to uh, uh, do something about our fiscal health and act a little bit more responsibly, who are the bad guys here. And it's the uh, Democrats who want to make no changes whatsoever uh, to, uh, to help things down the line, who are the responsible ones here, according to the media and the Biden administration. Yeah, look, I'm one of those people, I think, I think a vast swath of Americans would say, we have to pay down our debts. We, we cannot, we have to at least make the, pay the interest payments. We cannot default. We cannot fail to pay back money we have guaranteed we would repay by a certain date. The determination of which date it is depends on a variety of factors. There are various explainers online. One of the factors is tax payments. You know, some people pay their taxes very early in the year. They're due uh, April 16th. Some people file for extensions. So we're going to have money coming in between now and the spring and into the year. And we're also going to have money that needs to go out throughout the course of the year. So the question will be, in addition to prioritizing the interest payments and reshuffling payments to later in the year, you know, how much money is coming in, how much money is going out? That's why it's an inexact science, but you kind of have the Department of the Treasury has this sense of, well, we know we're going to hit it at some point within this date range. Every time there's this giant, you know, brinksmanship spending fight on Capitol Hill, we have yet to see one of these that really goes very well for Republicans. Generally, they lose the messaging war. And it's generally a Republican Congress playing, you know, hardball with a Democratic president, the Democratic president, you know, or, or I'm thinking also of some of the government shutdown fights we've seen in the past. It very rarely, I, I remember, you know, the, one of the very first ones, Ted Cruz making the argument, we need to do something we haven't done in a long time. We need to stand up and win the argument. And I remember hearing that and saying, well, we're screwed uh, because Republicans very rarely win the argument in the public square. We can argue about whether that's because of the media. We can argue about that's because the public just doesn't care about this stuff and just wants government to run and doesn't care about long-term debt. We can argue about whether this is Republican messaging that does badly. We can you know, argue this is Democratic demagoguery. But the circumstance is the circumstance. And I hope Republicans go into this knowing they're not likely to win the messaging war. You, you need to have a backup plan because the public is not going to rise up and say, yes, you absolutely have to do some spending cuts. Now, the, what I'd like them to emphasize is that there's this giant contradiction in the Biden administration's uh, perspective, because Joe Biden is going to spend the next couple of weeks 
telling us all about how terrible the consequences are of a debt default. And yes, I actually agree. They, they would be terrible. That is one of the reasons we have to cut spending. And if you want to say to Republicans, you can't get all the spending cuts that you want, fine. That's, you know, not necessarily an inherently irrational argument. But you do have to give up something and say something, a new uh, form of expenditures that you just decided unilaterally just a couple you know months ago in terms of saying to a whole bunch of people who owe money to the government for their student loans, hey, you don't have to pay that back. That strikes me as the easiest thing to fix. <laughs> you could just delay it. You can say, you know what, we're going to renegotiate the debt limit and then we're going to reinstate this program. Or by the way, I, hopefully this program will get struck down by the courts. But either way, this is the sort of thing you can say, hey, you know what, Joe Biden, if you want to help avoid a debt default, here's a very simple thing you could do. You don't even have to say we're not going to do it, although lots of Republicans would say you should not do this. You don't even have to admit, okay, this was unconstitutional from the beginning, although I think it was unconstitutional from the beginning. You just have to say, we're not going to do this until we've resolved the debt limit crisis. And that, that would be a very easy thing for Biden to do. Put aside the risks, it would make, you know, he'd get bipartisan applause. But no, Biden won't do that. So here's the interesting question. It, why, you're saying, oh, if we, you know, if we uh, crash the, through the debt limit, if we fail to repay our debts, it will have catastrophic economic consequences for the country. Is keeping the student loan forgiveness program in place worth that? I don't think so. But I doubt very few people will be able to force Biden into defending that. Because as we all know, Greg, when pushed, Biden is at his most articulate. <laughs> Well, when he's pushed from the left, he'll do whatever the hard left wants. We know that over the past uh, couple of years and really over the past 50. You make an excellent point that Biden's the reason this got accelerated. We were going to do a story, I can't remember if it was last week or earlier this week, about how his plan to uh, you know, excuse student debt and really put it on the backs of the rest of us who didn't take out those loans is the reason that this is uh, moving up so much faster on the calendar. And so you're right, if he were to uh, postpone it, this would give uh, Congress and the White House a lot more time to have an adult conversation about this. But uh, apparently we can't have that. And apparently Joe's going to uh, demand a clean debt ceiling extension or take his ball and go home and put it in his garage next to his boxes <laughs> of classified documents. All right. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And... Uh, I don't even know what to make of this now, but uh, apparently a problem within the Biden administration is contagious. This is from Andrew Kerr over at the Free Beacon. President Joe Biden tapped Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack to co-chair a team tasked with fixing a supply chain crisis that left grocery shelves empty. The secretary never even showed up to a meeting record show. In June 2021, as supply chains were being crippled by the effects of the pandemic-era restrictions and Biden's rampant spending, Vilsack pledged to participate in meetings with the newly formed Supply Chain Disruptions Task Force, an initiative Biden said would solve the budding crisis with a whole-of-government approach. Oh, I love that term. But those promised meetings never occurred. There are no records showing that Vilsack or his designees participated in any meetings with the task force after its launch. According to the Department of Agriculture's response to a Freedom of Information Act request submitted by the Functional Government Institute. Instead, Vilsack focused his efforts on accusing the meat industry of using the pandemic as an excuse to reap unfair profits. So, Jim, that makes two cabinet secretaries who weren't on the job during the supply chain crisis, uh, neither one of them apparently uh, attending many meetings. It also makes you wonder why Vilsack, the ag secretary, was in charge of this or supposed to be in charge of this. Lots of questions abound, but uh, not very impressive no matter how you slice it. You know, Greg, one of the 
oddities of Washington life that doesn't get nearly enough attention. And, you know, there were, there were a lot of controversies throughout the entire Biden presidency. A lot going on, but 14 years have passed since Barack Obama became president and appointed a new cabinet. Of those 14 years, Tom Vilsack has been the Secretary of Agriculture for 10 of them. <laughs> he served the full eight years of the Obama administration. And you could probably make the argument that Secretary of Agriculture, uh, unless you're reading the Weed Agency, is not the part of the government that most people pay the most attention to. And the you know, Secretary of Agriculture, fine. So he serves the full eight years. But what was really weird was that Biden you know, was arranging his cabinet and basically said, hey, let's have Vilsack do it again. And Vilsack apparently was like, sure. And he was confirmed 92 to 7 the second time around. So I guess even most Republicans are like, sure, fine, whatever. That guy's as good as any. You could say he's a Washington institution. Not in the sense that he's great or grand or of amazing accomplishment. He's just been around a really long time and uh, no one has yet to replace him. Uh, the second thing is the idea of this, oh, we have formed this special task force and we find out that it doesn't really do much. It reminds me of the Washington habit of when you're faced with a thorny problem. One of the things a candidate will promise to do is we're going to establish a blue ribbon commission. <laughs> Which is kind of a way of saying, I don't have any idea what to do, but I'll appoint a bunch of people who will tell me what to do. And then I'll have a solution. Should there be a task force on the supply chain issues? I Sure, fine. I figure if you're going to have the test, it should do something. It should meet. It should probably agree, hey, this is what we're going to do. And if Tom Vilsack is blowing it off, why should anybody else think this is a particularly big or important <laughs> idea? You know, announcing the task force is, is a very Washington way of saying, look, we've solved the problem. We took care of it. It's great. Look, this is all done. When in fact, the task force isn't doing anything and government continues to operate on autopilot, on the status quo, and very little actually changes. Now, that's exactly right. That's classic Washington. Uh, create some bureaucracy that doesn't actually do anything about it and then hope that people stop asking questions about it by the time uh, it issues some sort of... Uh feeble report. But uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, Vilsack's been there for two years in the Biden administration. Today is exactly the halfway point of Biden's four-year term. And so it's a very optimist, pessimist type of day. Are you excited that it's half over? Are you dreading the fact that it's only half over or going full Eeyore that it could only be a quarter over, depending on how things go next year? Yeah, I mean, you'd like to say this is the midway point of Biden's presidency, but we have no guarantees of that one way or the other. You know, some people would look at the Biden administration and see the glass is half full. Some would say the glass is half empty. And I think a lot of us would say the glass is leaking. <laughs> I think that's true. He knows the guy that invented glass, though. I'm sure he met him along ah, the way. I'm surprised I'm surprised Biden hasn't been the one. I, I'm the one. I, back Corn Pop and I came up with the idea for glass back in. <laughs> oh, uh, man. It is Friday, anyway. Greg. Yeah, we need the break. Happy weekend. See you on Monday, Jim. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. If you don't already, please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep them coming. Also, get us on your home devices, even though they're eavesdropping on you. Uh, all you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. <laughs>